with Brie. I'm your host, Brie. Thanks for listening. The Tea with Brie podcast is focused on deep, honest, and vulnerable conversation. Each week, I sit down with a different guest in order to have those conversations. Every week, we'll start with my guest's bio, an intro into how we know each other, and then we'll go into a deep dive conversation about whatever topic they brought to me that week. This week, I am joined by my guest, Charlotte Swain. Charlotte uses she, her pronouns as a part-time author and activist, aspiring plant mother, wannabe entrepreneur, and full-time feeler. She spends her days as a career fundraiser for the nonprofit space and her nights reimagining what love, friendship, and accountability can look like. Well, hello, my fancy friend. Hello, how are you? You know, great. Not that we didn't talk on the phone all day yesterday, hung out yesterday, (laughs) texted this morning. It's fine. You know, I like to check in periodically. I appreciate it. It's a a great time. yeah, I'm like thinking we've only known each other for like four or five months. We have, and through about three of those, we've been quarantined. But you know, when you know, you know. Um, yeah, you and I met at one of the ATX Interfaces events back in February. Mm-hmm, February. Um, and for those of you who remember, uh, KB, who was episode three, and Sam Sloopski, who was episode. 20-something. They are two of the hosts of ATX Interfaces. So like literally all my people are just (laughs) connected out here just being great. So yeah, Uh, I am so excited to jump into this topic with you today because (laughs) you know me, I'm always like rip off the bandaid and let's get real down in the muck of sadness. Um, (laughs) When you first brought this topic of grief slash domestic abuse that isn't just physical or isn't physical at all I was like well you know I love to cry so let's just (laughs) get up out here and you know as someone who has not only lost a lot of people you know from passing actually like physically dying but also like friendships that have ended and just, you know, having people remove themselves from life. But now I think we are all feeling this sort of collective grief of leaving what we considered normal before quarantine. So I feel like this is a very needed conversation. So yeah, like, I guess my first question is, what made you pick this topic? Is there anything you want to, you want the audience to know before we start just jumping in and chatting about it. Yeah. Um, I picked this topic because it's really personal to me um, and my story and who I am now. And um, about a year and a half ago, I had a really big um, traumatic event happen, um, which involved and trigger warnings for those of you who don't like this word, but um, I had a partner who committed suicide. And I think um, through the experience of grieving that relationship, which was a very complex and 
and difficult relationship even prior um, to her passing, uh, I discovered that grief is not something people are comfortable talking about or moving through. Um, it's not something we spend a lot of time discussing or preparing for. Um, and especially as someone who is queer and mixed race and black identified and cisgender and who has all of these different intersections, it was such a complicated and human experience that I really can't stop talking about. <laughs> I, I now, it's like I see the world totally differently and I really just want people to talk about grief because I want to avoid somebody experiencing some of the things that I did, which was reaching 25, having this huge earth shattering event happen. And then, you know, having to learn a whole new range of emotions. You know, we learn what feelings are when we're children and we learn how to identify them and how to respond to them if we're lucky. But grief is not included in that. And it's a different type of sadness and it's a different type of human experience. And none of us are going to get out of this life without experiencing grief, whether it is, you know, communal grief, like the things that have been happening with the Black Lives Matter protests or, you know, grief of loss of experience through COVID or the grief of losing a friendship or some other kind of romantic relationship or grieving a death. Um, I think all of us are going to have to experience this and none of us really know where to start. And so as someone who's been through it and with you being someone who I know has been through it, I feel like it's important to talk about it. It's just hard. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think about, you know, the rules of grief and, you know, my friend Cody and I talked about this briefly on our episode. And, you know, when I think of grief, I think of all versions of loss, kind of like I mentioned at the top of this, of the different kinds of things you can lose, right? And, you know, I think about, you know, when you lose a parent or a partner or someone to death, mm -hmm. you are allotted way more room to grieve. Absolutely. But then there's also like those people who, who want to box it. Like when my friend Nick died, I felt like people judged how much I grieved because mm -hmm. him and I weren't like in a romantic relationship, but he was one mm -hmm. of my best friends, but it was also a friendship that like we cherished. So like, it was like not, not that we like didn't share things, but like we were just like the friends that would hang out and like never have our phones. Like me and Nick have no, had no pictures together because we were just like always together. So like at that time, it wasn't a thing that I really like focused on with taking photos. Yeah. Um, since losing him, I, I make it a point to do more of that because I mean, that's one of the biggest regrets I have. But I have mentioned it here on the show before, like when Nick died in trigger warning, I like, I did not do well and like started drinking really heavily and was so depressed. And it was, it was probably one, one of the deaths that shook me the most because it was just so unexpected. Yeah. Um, and I think as someone who is so stoic and strong and very resilient and keeps carrying on, like, I think my grief made so many people uncomfortable because they weren't yeah. used to seeing me so devastated. Like, there's literally no other word to describe. Like, Nick dying for me was one of the hardest things I've ever dealt with. And, like, for people who knew, like, I had lost my mom before, like, you know, with your mom, you... Like I, with my mom, I had 15 years. I had only known Nick for like five or six, mm -hmm. but in that time we had gotten so close. And because like with my mom, like, and also like the whole thing, like comparing grief, like having to feel like you yeah. have to justify it. Absolutely. And so like, yeah, Nick and I had only been friends for, like five or six years, but like we were together all the time. Like he was one of the most important relationships in my life. And so like, 
I feel as though sometimes like with grief of like, you know, you losing a friend to death or you losing a friend just like you two had a falling out or like a friendship I recently lost back in the fall. Like that was also a really big one for me too. And having a partner, I was dating this person at the time who's like, you need to let this person go because it is literally ruining you. Like I just yeah. could not get over it. But it's that thing too. It, I think it was a mix of people are allotted way more grief if A, someone has died, but B, like there's rules around grief, which I hate. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and yeah and like people trying to tell you what is acceptable or not and you know the time when do you get to have to grieve and yeah I think you hit the nail on the head in a couple of ways I think grief is one of the only human emotions we try desperately to quantify in very strict ways um, we may try to quantify other feelings, but I think when it comes to grief, it's like, okay, you know, person passes and then you have this amount of time where you can just sit on your couch and do nothing. And then there's a funeral and then like, we'll maybe give you another few weeks, but like now you have to go back to work and now you have to go back to being okay around your friends and stop being such a downer because people don't want to hear about this all the time. And, and it's, it's kind of, you know, even when it is something to your point that is, quote unquote, socially acceptable for you to be broken about, like, you, you know, losing a family member or a friend or a partner to, to death. At a certain point, people are really uncomfortable about grief um, in a way that they're really not uncomfortable about anything else. They don't like to look at it. I felt like for months, people weren't looking at me straight on because they could see how broken I was. Because when you're in that type of traumatic grief, and I, I call it traumatic, not because I think you know, we can compare and contrast, but more so I think because it was so unexpected. And I think that when you have something that kind of shocks you in that way, you, it's not that you can't act normal. It, it literally isn't like, there's no way for you to fake it. Um, and you could just see it. I look at pictures of myself from those, that first like six months and I can just see how visibly not okay I was. And, you know, even the people closest to me that really loved me and were my rocks during that time, my mom and my dad and my brother and all of my friends and family across the world, really people reached out from everywhere and made me feel so loved. But at a certain point, people get tired of hearing about it. And um, even more so than just in our interpersonal relationships, I think the thing that really struck me was how ill-equipped, um, and I'm anti-capitalist anyway, but how ill-equipped our um, system of labor and work is to actually allow people to manage grief. I was in a job that I'd only been in for three months whenever Scylla passed away. And I had to fight for even just like two weeks of time off unpaid. And then I asked for an extra week and it was like, I was asking somebody to like, you know, give you a million dollars. Yeah. Like, yeah, it was like not going to happen. Um, and I, I chose to leave the job I was in then mostly because I felt so unsupported and just like nobody cared. And, and I was already in this place of what is the point anyway? Nothing really matters. And it, it was really, really hard. Um, and I think, something that would, would have made it easier would have been for me to have, you know, people like you and people that really understood where I was coming from and understood that as different and varied as all types of grief are, the core of that emotion is the same. And I think having been someone who has grieved now, when I talk to people who are in the process of grieving at whatever stage or who are still, you know, who have had that experience, I think there's just like a common understanding of it's okay to just sit with it. 
it's okay to just sit with someone and allow them to be wherever they are and just being there with them and not asking how you can help or asking what they need or doing any of that. Just being with somebody is the best thing that I think you can do for someone who is grieving because the truth is there is nothing you can do. But yeah, I had to learn that the hard way. And it's still, I still think, I still consider myself to be in the grieving process. I don't think I'm over it. I don't think it's something you get over. I think you just learn how to carry it differently. Yeah, I was just looking through a friend of mine's post. Um, her dad passed years ago. Sorry, they wrote, um, it doesn't get easier, it just sits differently. And I think that's the best way to categorize grief. Like I was walking with a friend yesterday morning and like still talking about my mom, like I cried, right? And it's it's this thing of like, it's always with you, but it's like the like thing in like the corner of your eye, like it like passes you, you don't always see it. Um, and, and even still like, you know, having, like I said, having gone through a lot of losses um, and, you know, when a friend of mine, Chuck, who's also been on the show, his dad passed um, last month. And like, even me having grieved so much, I still don't know what to say to people aside from I'm here in whatever way you need me here. If it's just sitting on the phone and you talking, if it's just like, just physically, like not being able to physically be there, but to just be there emotionally, if that's what you need, or just, you know, needing someone to talk to spiritually, like whatever you need. And I think with grief, people are trying to fix it for you quickly. And I'm like, you can't, no. you can't skip a grieving process. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like that thing that people say about heartbreak, like the only thing that's going to heal it is time. And nobody ever wants to hear that. And it's cliche, but it's true because nothing and nothing will ever actually fix it. It's an experience that you went through and it's something you're going to carry forever. I am inherently different. The person I was before this happened and the person I am now are not the same and could never be the same. And I, you know, my grieving process wasn't about trying to get back to normal or whatever that means or back to who I was before. It was about figuring out who I am now and rebuilding from whatever was left. And I think that's also part of what scares people is that people don't like change. <laughs> and when things are different, when people are different, that's that adjustment is really scary and difficult. But like, it was even more scary and difficult for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, I think the first funeral I went to, like when I first got a real grasp on death was probably when I was like nine or 10, one of my cousins, there was an accident and he passed from it and you know he was younger than me so it was like this whole big like I don't understand <laughs> like yeah. what do you mean luckily like my mom was her little Leo but um he was very much like this is what happens this is you know like the whole thing and so like I have been completely like enamored by death for so long and it was a like it was a fascination lead, leaning into obsession. Like there were nights I would not sleep because I was so afraid of dying. Mm -hmm. And like, have, I mean, it's just like the not knowing what is next, right? Yeah. And so like another trigger warning, like the more I got older and, you know, started dealing with depression and, you know, my own shit between eating disorder, anxiety, all the things. And then, you know, continually, continually, continuously there you go. <laughs> um, losing people, I started to very much like accept death which was a really interesting shift mm. i mean not to be that millennial that quotes harry potter because we all know jk rowling is canceled but she didn't write him so it's fine that's right the, <laughs> um but i always think back of like the, the three brothers stories and the last one who's like and greeted death as a friend I'm gonna yeah 
cry that always fucking get but that part always gets me because now I'm just to a point in my life that like everyone's like but you're 30 I'm like yeah but like like being a black president in America you don't you never know when your last day is gonna be absolutely and so I'm very much of like live every moment to the fullest and you know (laughs) like Ricky Bobby like (laughs) quarter mile (laughs) at a time like literally just never taking anything for granted because you know I had to get to a point that like literally like that old cliche like it's not you know it's about the life you live not the one you lose like so with me really you know learning to appreciate life through grief Mm -hmm. has been such an eye-opening experience of just real acceptance and understanding and not living in fear because I mean no one knows what happens when you die right like they're the people who have those near-death experiences and talk about you know heaven and the afterlife and you know I in the movie in the book slash movie like heaven is for real like all those things that like they say are waiting for us on the other side but we don't know and we might not end up there if it is something that can be expected of us and so with me I'm just very much like I have to make the most out of this life, but I did not really understand that until I lost people and had to grieve. Yeah, I think that's so true. I um, <clears throat> I think my experience has been really eye-opening for my own spiritual journey as well, uh, because I come from a background that didn't really have any religious um, context at all. I was raised atheist. Um, most people in my family are just very secular and don't even think about dying or what happens after we die. And also my family is English and they're very much like stiff upper lipped. And so there are just things that, not that we don't talk about or that they're, we're unemotional, but I think there are definitely things that are just sort of, you know, tough it out. That's the mentality. And I am not that kind of person. I have to cry and scream and write about things and and get them out in a really visceral way that I think makes people uncomfortable. Um, And so I know for sure me going through this was really, really hard on my family because I think, and especially my mom, um, and she has actually apologized to me for trying to accelerate my grieving process Mm. um, for wanting me to be okay before I was, um, which I really appreciated that she acknowledged that she had done that because it's hard. It's not, it's not like I didn't want to be in a space where I could enjoy my life again. Um, but this really shook me to my core and my feelings about the relationship itself were so complicated and I was already struggling with that to then have to grapple with a loss. And it's just so eye opening, but also terrifying, uh, when the person that you're grieving is both someone that you love and, and, or were in love with and was also your abuser. And I think that, um, sort of dichotomy was really, and is still really difficult for me to, um, understand even internally, it's even harder to explain to anybody else. And, and for my family and friends who knew some of the things that I was going through in that relationship, I think it was really hard for them to understand how painful it still was for me to lose her. It's interesting. I think going back when it came to death, I have had a lot of experiences with loss and, um, you know, dying and and what that means in context, um, in conversations with my family and friends. But it was always people that were sort of on the periphery of my life, people that either were far away or maybe were friends. um, But I, you know, didn't really um, have a close relationship with them. But it wasn't until I was 15 and my, um, 
uncle on my on my father's side of the family who was really more like a grandfather to me was coming to visit from the UK um, and actually passed away of a heart attack while in my family home. And I think that was the first time I was really privy to what grief looks like from a very intimate perspective. Because my aunt, I remember um, she just sat on the couch for you know the week and a half that they were meant to have been there after that. Um, and I just remember making her just cups of tea over and over again. And she just sat there and didn't really drink them and did nothing and didn't move, um, didn't sleep. And I remember witnessing it and being so sad and so scared and not knowing how to help. And when I was going through the same thing, I call them, I'm writing a memoir, casual plug. And in, in my memoir, I, I call those days for me, um, my onesie days because for like three weeks I sat on my parents couch in a Christmas onesie that my partner and I had bought together and pretended to watch Netflix and I didn't move and that part of grief honestly that part of all mental health I think we are still as a society really uncomfortable talking about it's really not okay to show you know okay to show what that looks like. And so then when it happens, I don't think we really understand how to deal with it, what we're supposed to, to do. Um, and as someone who is very much a fixer, <laughs> um, I wanted to fix myself. I wanted to force myself to be okay. I wanted to fast forward through the heavy shit. And I wanted to just get to the point where I had grown through it already. And it's just not possible. Um, and I, I think that was, was really challenging. Um, yeah, for just for me to know what to do with myself. And it was also the part that was hardest for me and the closest that I came to, again, trigger warning, um, you know, considering killing myself as well. Um, I think I got really close to it. And I do have an immense amount of gratitude for my friends and family who literally kept me alive in ways and, and kept me here in ways that I don't think they even fully realize. And that has made me so much more grateful and appreciative for the life that I do have because I know that I wouldn't have it if it wasn't for them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show before, but like every May, the whole month of May, I do nothing. Like I go to work Except for this year, we were in the house. Um, but <laughs> I would work and just come home. And it's every single May, like, my body just shuts down. And people are always like, what does that happen? I'm like, your body remembers trauma. Your body yeah. remembers grief. And so, like, there are days when, like, you know, anniversaries of things are, like, you know, I get very anxious around, like, the time, like, my, around my mom's birthday. Or, like, when Nick's deathversary comes around and I'm just, like, very much, like, preparing myself for it. But, like, May, I always get, like, my body. It's almost like I have the flu every May. Like, I physically cannot do anything. So, like, luckily, I've been afforded jobs that I am able to work from home from for those for that month. Because that's literally all the energy I have is to work maybe up to eight hours. But, like, like you're saying, like, the accommodations around that. But I think about that, too, of, like, you know... I'm the person who like makes herself cry and it's because I feel like I'm a person who holds a lot of emotion but because everyone sees me as so strong I'm not I'm not allotted the the privilege of like coming undone in front of a lot of people mm-hmm. and again it goes back to like having permission to grieve right yeah. like there are you know things I think about too like 
whole moments of my life that I have mentally blocked out and have thought about like going to th- a, t- a therapist to kind of work through it. But like there are times people are like, yeah, we did this and we did that. And I'm like, I don't remember that day at all. And I realize it's like a lot of trauma brain blocks of like nothing that day specifically happened that was traumatic, but it's just like the people who were there. And I'm just like, I cannot have that memory in my brain. And I was like joking to like, like my brain's a, a computer hard drive. Like every 30 days, it does like a slight refresh and like is, is making yeah. space. Um, I identify with that so heavily. When I tell you people do not realize the impact that trauma all traumas, big or small, have on their body and their brain. I, um, in the introduction to my book, I wrote out the entire scene. I, I kind of jumped in in the deep end. And the entire first scene is the moment that I got word that Scylla had passed. And I write it from my perspective now, which is that it feels like it happened to someone else, even though I know it happened to me. And I think there's a certain division um, that our brain does, you know, to dissociate from those things and processing something that is that big and that earth shattering is really hard. And I don't, you know what? I've been in and out of therapy for over a year. Um, I just had a therapist tell me that my trauma was triggering for her. <laughs> so I, we're moving through it the best we can. And I think that that's, you know, what we should all be afforded. I think it, we all need to be afforded the, the freedom and the flexibility to, to manage our grief in whatever way makes sense to us. And I think it's really detrimental to everyone communally and in our society when we, we don't allow people to grieve and move through their trauma in ways that make sense for them. We are not, you know, we are not all the same and that is okay. That is good. But it also means that we need to be willing to afford people the things that they need. And we just don't do that. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, her dad passed last year. And so like when the one year death first weeks, I don't know the other word to use was coming yeah. around. Um, and now with Father's Day being tomorrow, on the day, the one year anniversary, she called me the week before and she's like, what was it like the first year that your mom passed? Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, girl, I cannot remember <laughs> back that far. I was like, that was, I was 15 when she passed. So it would have been when I was 16. I'm like, I'm 30 now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I told her, I'm like, it, even still, it is rough. I was like, so you might wake up that day and be fine. You might wake up that day and feel like you cannot physically move. You may make it the whole day during work, during work, and then cry in your car the way home. I'm like, I was like, but I want to tell you what people didn't tell me is that it is okay to not be okay. It is okay to be angry. To I'm like, it is angry to be okay, angry, sad, okay, like happy, even. It is okay to still. It is like, oh, is it okay to still? It is. It is okay to still experience joy when you are also grieving. Like those two are not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like with tomorrow being Father's Day. Um, her boyfriend like messaged all of our friends. Her birthday was Friday, and then tomorrow's Father's Day. Mm-hmm. And it's like we're doing a whole thing with her, like keeping social distancing as much as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, also <laughs> wanting to be there for her, so we're like making a plan. But just he messaged me. He was, I know it might be rough for her. I don't know what she needs. He's like, but I know it would mean a lot if like she had people. And I was like, well, her and I were gonna go walking anyway, so this is <laughs> fine this by me. Out. So, I mean, I I want a lot of people to really understand just like that, those levels of of grief, like it is, you will never get over it. And and I, and I, 
remember like telling people for a long time like oh i'm over that person dying and it's not that and it's it's such a flippant comment to make it's i've learned how to live with my grief i've learned how to live with my mom not being here i've learned how to live with nick and i never having that dinner we were supposed to get the next week i've learned how to live with even like grieving what could have been oh and i cry it's okay i think that's the hardest part yeah um, I always tell people when I talk about Nick, he's actually got a tattoo for him on my ankle, but like Nick and I have always joked, if we weren't married by the time I was 35, we would get married. So he literally had wrote me a thing the week before of just like, I want you to see you through my eyes. He goes, you're so hard on yourself. Mm-hmm. And he goes, love your future possible husband. <laughs> it's still one of the most like beautiful selfless gifts he's ever given me, but I don't think people also have that permission to like, you can grieve things that never happened. And I, it's one of the conversations I had with parents when I worked at Out Youth is that, you know, when kids come out and, you know, I think we are able to be angry versus be sad. Like people would rather go to anger than to sadness. Absolutely. And so when I have parents who are like, who would come in and be like, my kid and I, it's my kid. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, are you angry or are you sad? And they would really look at me. I'm like, because it's, it's okay to be both. But, you know, the anger is something you would have to work through on your own. The sadness, we can help work through together. Because it's that mourning process of what they thought their kid's life would look like. Wow. Or it's the, the sadness of feeling, feeling like your kid's never going to be safe. Or, you know, be afforded the privileges they would have. Or, you know, the anger isn't actually directed at the kid but at the fact that society may not support the kid. Ooh, and so send this to my mama because she needed to hear all of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like whenever I talk to people and would go and do these presentations, I'm like, I need you to first sit with that. And it wasn't until like I was listening to something one day that was like, what, like really digging into emotions. Like if we think about like each category of emotion of like anger, sadness, happiness, if we have like categories first and then we'd see the trickle down of like the other options between like frustration, um, annoyance, like being able to like use a word and see like where the real root of it is, mm-hmm. then we can actually figure out what it is. But like me, whenever I do have a, an emotion of some sort, I'm like, what am I feeling? Like taking mm-hmm. that step to be like, okay, before we move forward, let me try to work through this. And so that's what I want a lot of people to know about grief is like, it is sometimes just like literally trying to check in with yourself. Like, what am I feeling? Can I fix it? Can, can, can I address it? Can I, you know, and, and not running from it. I think as people, we are so afraid, like I said, we go to anger versus sadness. We don't want to be seen as vulnerable. And I think that's why it is so hard for for us to grieve and and to try to move forward. Yeah. I think people are really scared of sitting with sadness because they feel like they're never going to climb back out of it again. And I totally understand that because there have been months of my life where I felt like I will never climb out of sadness again. But the thing I always come back to is that I always have. Up until this point, I have a best friend and she always tells me, Charlotte, you have survived every single day of your life to this point, even the worst ones. And I think that is the most valuable thing that I have kept hold of during my darkest moments is that, you know, I don't know how, I don't know what it'll look like, but I know that I can survive this. And then making the choice to do so. Because it is a choice. One thing that I wanted to go back to about death adversaries. So this year on January 22nd was the first year without Scylla. And the 
you know, that my feelings towards all of that are really complicated, but it's kind of amplified by the fact that my best friend gave birth to her second child on that day. And so I have this huge, painful memory of one of the worst experiences, no, the worst experience of my life. And then I also have this beautiful human who is amazing and sensitive already, even though he's only one, and who just has so much life and who is so valuable and important to me. And it's really hard, again, to carry those things together. Um, and I was, I was recently spending time uh, with her, and she, out of the blue, kind of looked at me and said, do you still think about her every time you look at him? Um, and the answer is, yeah. I do. Um, It's just, it's different now. I think when he was first born, I was so viscerally angry. I I remember quite literally saying out loud, why couldn't you have just waited a day so that I could have this day that was just his so that I didn't have to share it. And I think now I recognize that life is about sharing all the weird things all in one. You know, we're not only one thing. We're never going to be only happy and we're never going to be only sad. There's always going to be stuff that can bring us joy, even in the worst moments. The night that Scylla died, my two best friends came over and we cracked open a bottle of whiskey that my dad was never going to drink and listened to Beyonce. And I laughed. And and that memory, as painful as it is and as heart-wrenching and there's so much there, but that brought me joy in that moment. And I think we need to really look at, you know, understanding people as more than just one thing. We're complex. We're complex beings and emotions shift a lot all the time. And I think we need to allow ourselves and then other people to be that. Um, And I I won't lie, I still have a lot of anger about uh, my partner passing. I think because I knew that we both dealt with a lot of the same issues. We both were dealing with a lot of um, you know, depression and anxiety and to an extent suicidal ideation. And I think that for me, it sort of felt like in her choosing to take her own life, she had taken my option to do so because it's significantly harder to make that call and to, to convince yourself that you don't matter and that nobody else would mind if you're gone when you see firsthand what happens when somebody else does that. And that was, that was what it was. It was a, it was a wake up call in many ways. Um, And it was also kind of a fuck you. And I and I am still carrying what it looks like to be angry and sad um, in equal measure and trying to compartmentalize that in ways that make sense. Yeah. There's so much I want to say. So my godson is born on the day my mom passed, like three years difference. Oh. Yeah. She passed in 06 and he was born in 09 on February 1st. So like my family is always like, well, maybe like your mom sent Marcus to us, which is like a whole thing I could cry about for days on end. It gets me every year. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's that that same thing of like grief and joy can coexist. Mm -hmm. Um, Nick uh, passed away on Easter Sunday, 2019. Easter is a very big deal in my family. 
like I was in church when I got the notice that uh, some, I, I was sitting in church, a friend of mine had come with me and this girl into high school was like, I'm so sorry to hear about Nick. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, oh, no one told you. I was like, okay. Um, and so this poor girl had to like tell me and we weren't really that close. And she's like, I know Nick is in the hospital. He's been in the hospital since Friday. And I had no idea. So like, I'm pissed that no one told me. And so I hadn't been in a hospital since my mom passed in 06. And now we're in 2019, no, 2014. And going up to a hospital. And like, we had two of our friends were there. His brother, who looks just like him, was there and his parents. And so I'd always like seen his brother in passing and like high and by. And same with his parents. But like, just them allowing me to come in and say goodbye to him was the most thoughtful gift they could have given me, right? And then, you know, after he passed, I that night he passed, I actually had a dream about him in the next life, like sitting on a cloud reading books, which is very unbranded for Nick. And so that's the tattoo on my ankle. And so like every year their family has Nick Fest, which is on his birthday. And so every year, one of his aunts will, like every year someone new comes. And so every year that I'm there, it's still, it happens in Connecticut. Um, every year that I was there for it, she would come over and be like, would you mind showing them your tattoo? Because like I have a tattoo for him and a couple of our other friends do too. Um, and so like that too, like, you know, Easter being such a big holiday in my family and then losing someone so significant to me. And then also like you're saying about, you know, having someone else you know end their life by suicide i had a really close friend named dave who we called pk short for his last name and he uh completed suicide uh, also in 2014 and you know as someone who had struggled with suicidal thoughts myself for years it's that same thing too of like no one would care right like you you tell yourself these things of I could end this pain and it will just be done and you know the people who are left will be fine but there have been times like before he passed, like in the year I graduated college was rough for me. Like I did not know where I belonged. I felt like I just was drowning in every day. Like my godmother would call me or, you know, this is my godson's grandmother. And so like she would call me or he would call me. Like and Marcus was three when I graduated college. Um, but he was always like, come over, hang out with me. And so I, I constantly told him when he was little, I'm like, you saved me. And like, he was little, so he didn't know. Right. And so now like, there is no one on this planet besides Marcus, my godmother and my grandmother, who I love as much as I do, because they are the four people who like, like you're saying, kept me here when I felt like nothing yeah. else made sense. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's hard to, to tell people like to anchor yourself to someone who keeps you here, but also like for those who are struggling, it's like, you would be missed. You do matter. I know things are so difficult, but all the things I've been able to do just this last month alone in my life and how much, you know, looking back that I would have missed breathtaking. Yeah. I think for Scylla, it was one of those things where I was so angry with her for her treatment of me, but I also understood it because I knew that even though it wasn't fair and it wasn't okay, her treatment of me was a result of her trauma. And I saw that. And I think, you know, through that, I was able to love her. I knew where it was coming from. And unfortunately, because of where she was and, and how she was dealing or not dealing with her past and, and her experiences in her life, um, I was that lifeline for her. And so while she successfully committed suicide on January 22nd, 2019, that was not the first time that she had attempted while we were together. It was maybe the fourth. And I think I, I refer to this event as something unexpected 
And it's not because I was surprised. It's because we never expect it to actually happen. And, and I, truth be told, in the message that I received from her, which, which is what told me that she had passed, um, which I, I didn't see until many hours after the fact, um, I think she even said something that showed me she was surprised. And, and I, I truly believe that when it comes to suicide, people are wanting an escape from their pain. And I fully understand that. I fully do. And I will never, ever think of anybody badly who has, who has felt, who, who has reached that point um, where their demons are so big that they feel like they can't keep going. But it saddens me because I often wonder, um, in reference like to what you were saying before, if things had been a little bit different, if you know she had received the care that she needed, hell, if I had answered the phone when she called me, because I was the last person she tried to make contact with on this planet and I didn't answer. And I, I feel guilt over that and I regret it. And I, I don't think that her passing is my fault, but I do think that I had the ability to stop it. And maybe not forever, maybe only that day, maybe it would have been another day. Maybe I would be, you know, maybe it would be March 30th or some other day. But I do know that on that day, there was something I could have done that could potentially have saved her life and I didn't do it and I have to live with that. And that really, really adds complexity to this feeling around grief and guilt and mourning when you feel like you wish you would have done something differently. And I think all of us feel that way. Whenever we lose someone, there's always something we wish we could still say. There's always something we wish we could change or do or have done. Hindsight is twenty twenty, and it's also a bitch. <laughs> and it'll remind you that we make mistakes and we do the best we can in the moment. And this is just the truth of what happened. And I have had to learn to live with that. But I think after that too, you know, I was so grateful to her family because they did um, really allow me in and and allowed me to grieve with them, which I'm I'm really grateful for. And I don't really have a close relationship with them now, and that was by choice. But I I think I felt really complicated about that as well because I knew that there were issues there that I was aware of, and I know that they loved her and and were grieving as people that loved her. And that was why I wanted to be close to them because I wanted to be close to people that at least sort of understood where I was coming from. Um, But then, you know, they were Mormon and they held her funeral in a Mormon church. And I had to stand up in front of a congregation of people who didn't believe that I had a right to love the way that I do or exist the way that I do. And I poured my heart out about how much I loved this person and how much I was grieving her. And it felt like I wasn't being acknowledged in the way that I existed in her life. And that was really hard. I think that as time goes on, I will continue to carry this differently. And I think if we have a conversation about this, you know, a year from now, it'll, I'll, it'll look different and I'll feel differently about it and I'll have learned even more. Um, but I do think that I have gained a lot and grown a lot. And while I, I'm not one of those people who says things like, oh, you know, it all happened for a reason, or if I could go back and change it all, I would. If I could go back two years ago and never meet her, if I could go back to that day and pick up the phone, I am under, I'm not idealizing anything. This is a terrible thing that happened and it was traumatic and it was heartbreaking and it was unnecessary. And I 
I'm trying to find the beauty in that pain, but I wish I didn't have to. Mm. So, yeah. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful place to wrap it. Yeah. <laughs> um, the only thing I'm going to share in the show notes this week is some resources to support groups between suicide, domestic abuse, depression, anxiety, grief, um, just wanting to put resources at the at the helm for y'all. And I'll be sure to link Charlotte's Instagram and info. As you know, I like to try to wrap each show with a question that will bring us a joy or a palate cleanser or what have you so that we can, you know, this is a lot here today. And the question is, what is the best advice you were ever given? Or what's a piece of advice you would give your younger self? So my answer to this question is twofold. So I think um, some of the best advice I've ever received was not to downplay my own feelings to make other people more comfortable. But more than that, to not try and compare my pain. Um, As my best friend puts it, it's not pain Olympics. And my pain and your pain is not any more or less valid just because the context of our lives and our experiences are different. That's it for this week's episode of The Tea with Brie. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at the tea with Brie. Send me an email at theteawithbree at gmail.com and visit the website theteawithbreepodcast.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. A special thanks to Mama Duke for our theme music, and I will talk to you all next week. Bye.